Welcome to the Awaken Podcast. At Awaken Church, we are passionate about wrestling with and being unraveled by the Christian scriptures. Ideally, we do this together around the table in the neighborhood of Bones. As we see it, Jesus has invited all of us to encounter Him in a diverse community and participate with Him in a mission of loving our neighbors. Uh, I'm going to introduce uh, our, our preacher, Jess Andrews, uh, but she has given a sermon here before, and it was really profound, and it was in Advent just over a year ago. Um, but many of you have joined us since then, so let me introduce Jess, um, and I am, I'm actually adding a line to this that I didn't tell you, so here we go, um, but that's at the end. Um, so if you uh, know Jess, you would know that she loves podcasts and mountain biking. I know you're friends with Eric and Nadine, right? And they're like the mountain biking champions of Alberta. I don't know. So there's a friendship there. Um, and she loves, uh, she is currently studying at the intersection of theology and psychotherapy. It's very important. Um, she's passionate about community building and rebuilding. Uh, rebuilding trust in ourselves through contemplative prayer, embodiment, and relearning that God first called us good. Uh, she currently works part-time at the Road Church. Uh, and the Road Church is CRC, right? Christian Reformed Church? Yes, okay. Um, as the Faith Formation and Community Care Coordinator. Um, and so what I was going to say, just what I know about Jess, um, her and I have connected a bit over the past couple years. Um, uh, some, sometimes she's sort of been there for me as I'm like figuring out pastoring. Um, and one thing I've really appreciated about Jess um, is that her church is going through um, a similar like discernment process um, and celebrating uh, inclusion process as us. And so um, we've been able to kind of swap notes and say like, how's it going at your church? And she's like, how's it going at this church? And um, I really feel that uh, the road church is so much like us. Um, and interestingly, I think my dad just joined the road church and my stepmom. So they're there. That's like a new community for them, which is neat. Um, so I look forward um, to hearing from Jess. Um, she very much has a pastor's heart, um, a heart for community and prayer and, and good uh, love of scripture. So Jess, I'd love for you to come up and, and lead us. Um, and while you're up here, you're welcome to take your mask off while you're here, but um, you don't have to. The mic will pick you up. So. Thanks, Nikayla. Wow, for a small group, you have a lot of musical talent in this room. There's like 18-part harmony going on. Very, very impressive. And uh, if anyone wants to sing somewhere on Sunday mornings, we could use you <laughs> at the Road Church. Um, okay, so marriage, what's it for and who's it for? I did not title this because I feel like, like Nikayla gave me this title, but I was like, if I was choosing the title for this on my own, I wouldn't, I wouldn't really think I have the right to say, this is what marriage is for and this is who's it for. But that is the title. And um, yeah, I'm just really excited to be here. Um, like Nikayla said, my name is Jess Andrews. Um, if you're looking for me online, I, it, most of my stuff is Jess Dell Andrews. And um, my pronouns are she, her. And I quite closely follow what you guys are doing here because it's really encouraging to me to see the things that Awaken is doing. And um, yeah, I think that I just want you guys to know that. <laughs> um, so basically, my like 
marriage-related credentials for speaking on this today um, are pretty limited. I have been married for 16 years, um, but um, you know we're going to be talking about a more um, inclusive definition of marriage today, and my lived experience is as a cis straight woman in marriage. Um, so the things that I'm not, I am not a marriage expert, I am not um, a marriage counselor, and I'm not a theology marriage expert, and I am not in a same-sex marriage or relationship. So I'm not really sure what gives me the right to speak here today. I hope that I can do so with a humble heart. Um, what, I, what I'm really worried about happening here today and what I really don't want to happen is that this sermon just end up being a big cognitive debate of ideas without actually acknowledging real people with real hearts. Um, we're talking about marriage. There's real joy, comfort, healing, intimacy, connection, liberation, love. And there's real struggle, pain, harm, shame, disconnection, rejection, and heartbreak of real people. And that must always lead the way on these kind of conversations. Um, I will be speaking about some hard topics today. Um, I mentioned suicide. I mentioned... Um, some things about sexuality, so I, I want you to take care of yourself, and if you, like, if you need to leave the room or anything like that, I won't be offended. Um, yeah, and, okay, what about singles as well? Should everyone that's single just, like, check out now? Um, no, I, know, I hope not. A shout out to all the single people in the room, to divorced folks, to currently unmarried folks. Um, what I would like to say to you today is that I, well, I've definitely been a part of church culture long enough to know that we, in our current time and place, in Western church place, social location, we have put marriage up on a pedestal. And we have offered um, singles the short end of the stick, and that is wrong. And um, I think if, I hope that if there's one takeaway about that today, I hope everyone will hear that intimate companionship is a universal human need and that God designed it that way, and God designed it that way on purpose. It's not a design flaw of human frailty. It is a central feature of what imaging our God looks like, that we need each other, that we're interconnected, that we need intimate companionship, and the church needs to do a lot better in meeting that need um, for all folks, for single folks, for married folks, um, but especially for our single folks. Um, so today, because I didn't want to just dive straight into the academic, um, scripture-y stuff. Um, I wanted to just start with a little bit of my own story. Why am I here and why am I so passionate about this topic? You know, why is our church trying to talk about um, having an affirming discernment process? And um, our, the question we're putting forward is, are we willing to have the full celebration, inclusion, and participation of gender and sexual minorities in all areas of our church life? Like. And Kayla said, I work at the road, and I wear this little rainbow bracelet every Sunday. I never go to church without wearing this rainbow bracelet. And, um, you know, it's kind of a funny, it's just like a funny little thing, and it's like, it's not, it's not like me being like, oh, look at me, I'm the best ally, I wear a rainbow bracelet every Sunday, right? It's like, it's like the assumption has to be because of 
what we know has been going on for so long, the assumption has to be that church is not a welcome place. Church is not a safe place for gender and sexual minorities. And so it's so important to have um, welcomes at the beginning of your service where you're actually explicitly saying who is welcome here and you're actually naming people that aren't, that haven't been and currently aren't welcome in many places. And um, I would even say my church currently is not a fully welcoming place because we're not, like, we still have so far to go. We're not a fully safe place. We still have so far to go. And, and when I try to imagine what it would be like to walk through the doors of a church and not really know what to expect, not know how welcoming it's going to be or how safe it's going to be for me to be there, that's why I wear the bracelet. I just hope that you know, the little welcome moment that we have at the beginning and wearing the bracelet, that there might be some tiny little sliver of, of hope that this could be a positive experience. Um, so that's why I have this bracelet on. Taking my non-affirming, inherited, and uninspected theology and going on a journey with it and figuring out what to do with it and ultimately coming out on the other end in a more affirming place for, for me, that actually came out of a love for the church. It didn't come out, like for a lot of people that came out of um, having someone really close to them that started telling their story or, or confiding in you or whatnot. For me, it actually came out of a love for the church. I, I, I really love the church. Like people that know me, my brothers and sisters, um, like I'm a huge church nerd. Like when I have a night off to myself, like I had COVID recently and I was quarantining in my room away from my family. I have three kids. And like, you know, instead of watching Netflix all night, what do I do? I listen to podcasts like on theology <laughs> from Bible scholars, not just like, like I'm a total church nerd. I love church. I was like teacher's pet for church, like through my whole life, you know, and, um, and church has loved me really, really well. Um, like I grew up in a small rural farming community, like, you know, potlucks. I was the pianist, you know, Sunday school assistant. Then you moved to university, tight knit, like dorm room Bible studies. I lived with a Baptist pastor and his wife in university. I roomed in their home. Um, and then um, my husband and I moved and we lived and worked in intentional Christian community for 11 years at a Christian outdoor center and camping ministry. And so community and Christian community, it, like it has formed me intimately over my entire life. I love the church and the church has loved me so well. So that's kind of the foundation. Then we move out to Toronto. And I start meeting some, some people that identify as gender or sexual minorities. And, and what happened was I had this realization that um, the welcome and the community that the church had, had extended to me and that the church said was there for everybody, that it wasn't. And this was a huge moment for me and something just like cracked inside of me because I was like, that is so wrong. Because Good news is for everyone. Um, you know, and hearing stories of people being fired from ministry positions, of people being disowned from family members, of, um, of someone told me once about um, going into a church building and having like a, like a five alarm body trauma response just from setting foot into the building. And these are, it's not, that's not okay. That's not okay. Why do I get this like, loving, caring formation from the church, but it's not available to everyone. It's just really not okay. Um, and what that comes down to for me 
is um, when I did my clinical pastoral education thing at the Foothills Hospital, we used to say this thing to comfort families a lot because, because it's true. That's why we said it over and over. And it's that um, when you lose someone, the deeper the love, the deeper the grief. And so for me, I guess what I'm saying is how I want to start this sermon and what I want to say about my story is that I love the church so much. The church has loved me back so well. But when I hear about church harm, including my own part in it, whether acknowledged or unacknowledged, when I hear about church harm to my brothers and sisters and siblings in Christ who are sexual and gender minorities, that grief is really deep. And the reason it's so deep is because of the love of the church and because of the love of God being so deep. So I don't know all of your stories here, and I don't expect your trust in what I have to say today because we, trust comes from doing life together in relationship. My simple hope today is threefold. First, that I will do no further harm by being here. Secondly, that my presence here will just be an encouraging reminder that Awaken is not alone in wrestling with these things. There are other churches like mine that are in the same boat. And thirdly, I'm not going to pretend that I have a bunch of clear and certain answers, but I do hope that this message might provide like just another angle or lens or nuance to the dialogue that is ongoing here at Awaken. And I hope that it's possible that it will show you that you, you can be faithful and Christian and biblically really devoted, and you can have a stance, I believe, of widening the definition of Christian marriage to include same-sex couples or even simply just two consenting adults. So I am going to be preaching in favor of same-sex marriage, and it's okay if you don't agree with me, but I just invite you to, um, to just lean in together with me. So um, if we want to talk about Christian marriage specifically, because there's other kinds of marriage, right, civil unions and whatnot, um, it seems like a good place to start would just be to say, okay, well, what's the biblical purpose of marriage? So what the plan is for today is to fly through like a really quick bird's eye view of what is the Bible, like what are some key passages in the Bible as a whole? What's covenant? What's a marriage covenant? What are the four key things that we find in scripture about a marriage covenant? And then um, we'll end up by considering um, who is made marriage for? And what we're getting at in that is what are the two, two main pushbacks keeping us from just having like same-sex marriage being an okay thing across the board? And those two key, key things being um, biological male-female complementarity and procreation. So buckle up your seatbelts because this is where I start talking faster. Okay, so the Bible. What is marriage for? This is not exactly straightforward because there are actually tons of different things said about marriage in the Bible. So in the Old Testament narrative, marriage is really closely connected with procreation, much more closely than in the New Testament narrative, um, and even more closely than our current understanding of um, Christian uh, covenant and marriage. So it's procreation, have more babies, build up the nation of Israel, preserve the family line. And that is the drive behind teachings that sometimes seem really weird to us today, uh, like rules about a man marrying his, brother, his brother's widow, or like that over-the-top passage about like worrying about wasting any male seed on the ground. And then we've got like polygamy all over the place as well. So have more babies, you know, spread the, spread the people of Israel far and wide. Um, and our context now is different, and the survival of our people group is no longer at stake. We don't have like the Assyrians coming for us. Um, and even today, Jews and Christians alike don't subscribe to many of these types of Old Testament teachings about marriage or sexual activity, for that matter, anymore. Um, in the New Testament, 
let's talk about Jesus. Well, Jesus actually doesn't really seem to be that concerned about marriage. Um, we assume that Jesus wasn't married himself. Um, what with his itinerant lifestyle, there's no record of like a family line um, of Jesus in the Bible, but the Bible is like quite silent on the whole topic of Jesus being married. Jesus only directly speaks to the topic of marriage a very few times. Um, for instance, Pharisees ask him a question about divorce, trying to test him um, in Matthew 19 and Mark 10. And then there's um, a silly story in all three synoptic gospels about a woman who's married to her brother. She's married to seven different brothers. The, the previous brother keeps dying on her before she can get pregnant. And then Jesus is like, well, come on, guys. Like, don't you know, this isn't even, why are we even talking about this? Because in the, in the resurrection, no one's even going to be married. And everyone's like, huh? Um, so then we come to basically what the landmark, I, I would say, is the landmark passage on marriage in the New Testament, and that's in Ephesians 5. And this is like a beautiful, beautiful piece of scripture. It's read at marriages all the time nowadays still. And it is a beautiful call to mutual Christ-like submission and sacrificial loves. And you know, you'll, you would remember the words, wives submit to husbands as to the Lord. Husbands love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. And that's to the death, right? Like it doesn't say the words to the death, but that's what we mean, right? And then it says a bit later, this is a profound mystery, um, but Paul says he is talking also about Christ and the church in this. So that, I mean, there's just so much there in that passage. Um, then we have Paul um, talking later in 1 Corinthians, saying that he's called to celibacy. And then in a bit later, in 1 Corinthians 7, he just says, like, in general, it's just best not to marry. <laughs> um, and really, you probably should only get married if you just can't control your passions. And so the background culture that is sort of um, forming Paul as an author in that time is Stoicism, is really, um, really growing in popularity at that time. And... Um, there's a particular belief within Stoicism that's really developing that says that um, sex is only acceptable for procreative utility because it's like a passion and we should just like rise above all of our passions and be like lofty cognitive heads on a stick or something. Um, and then, you know, then going forward into church history, you see this Stoicism influence really heavily being involved there. Um, St. Augustine, a few hundred years later, actually believes at that time, Stoicism said that the only form of sex at all considered moral was sex for procreation. So if you're married, you, you can't just have sex for pleasure, like you can only have it if you're making a baby. <laughs> um, and, um, lost my spot. Yeah, so basically it's, it's a little bit weird that, that church history has gone from that to like today where we've got this like marriage on a pedestal and the singles, well, you just go do your own thing. Um, it's kind of messed up, but it's also actually super predictable when you think about like human history and how we always pendulum swing, right? So it's like, well, let's just pendulum swing to like only celibacy and then let's pendulum swing to like um, marriage being the one and only best thing. Um, but all in all, I would say like what I get from this really quick bird's eye view from the Bible is a reminder that marriage is a good thing. It's a very good thing and it's a gift of God. But it's not the only good thing. It's not necessary to live a good life. Um, Jesus is the most loving human, like the epitome of who we're supposed to aspire to. And he was probably not married. 
Um, so we can all love and serve the Lord, married or unmarried. And we can all live into a truly um, full version of ourselves, um, either way, married or unmarried. Um, there's a theology prof named um, Amy Plantinga Powell, and she says, um, no spouse, no fellow creature can be my all in all. We are all on a journey of love that ends not in marriage, but in perfect communion with God and with everything else in God. Okay, next slide is um, marriage of same-sex couples in the Bible. Okay, right, it's in there, right? 2,000 pages, 66 books, it's in there somewhere, isn't it? Uh, nope. Sex between two people of the same gender does occur in the Bible and in lots of like literature that's contemporary to the biblical literature. Um, even though it's very unlikely that ancient biblical writers had a concept of sexual orientation like we do today or would have understood that there could be like a spectrum um, of possibilities for sexual orientation. But there is no word or phrase in the Bible for same-sex orientation or same-sex identity that's anywhere related or consistent with our understanding of those concepts today. We do have a mistranslation that occurs in 1946 with the Revised Standard Version in which the, the, the word homosexuality, what, which was never even coined until 1869, gets carelessly inserted back into like the translations of an ancient text, um, um, taking the two words arsenokortai, which is the men who lie with men word, and malakoi, which is the um, effeminate or weak um, word. And um, what happens is the translators Kathy Balduck, if you YouTube Kathy Balduck, she has like really great historical information on this because she did a whole bunch of research into all of the, the notes that the different translators of that version like wrote to each other and how they made their decisions about what to translate. So look her up. But basically, it was just like, a, like an unthought out mistake because in their minds, that was the word that was going around at that time in the 40s and 50s. And they just put it in there thinking, well, this will just simplify it. Um, and yeah, and then at that time, like that word, it, it, that, the word homosexuality was in the manual for psychiatric disorders. So the, the irreparable damage from that 1946 translation putting that word homosexuality in there, and then what people would automatically associate it with from the sociocultural context at the time, subsequently, the word was taken out of revised standard versions after that point, but like the damage was already done, right? Okay, so it's not in there. Same, marriage of same-sex couples is not in the Bible, so if the Bible doesn't tell us what to do with it, what the heck should we do with it? Um, are we allowed as Christians to innovate? Are we allowed to make extensions from biblical principles and ethics for the needs and concerns of our time? That's a huge question, and people have different opinions on that. I would say yes, I believe we are, and I am in good company in claiming that. Um, people like N.T. Wright, he has referred um, to some, he uses the metaphor of the unfinished drama of the biblical narrative and how it's up to us to continue writing Act 5 um, with the help of the Holy Spirit. Um, biblical scholar Wal Walter Brueggemann, um, he gives this advice. So he says basically you've got faithfulness and you've got innovation and that basically you just have to hold them in tension because if you have... Um, rigid fidelity to the biblical text without any innovation, you're going to get static dead doctrines that can't respond to the changing needs of society. But if you have innovation without any fidelity, 
then you're going to fall into a trap of this is what he says, deeper relativizing, which gives up everything for a moment of contemporary relevance. The scriptures themselves also um, set a precedent for innovation. I'm going to just skip over the explanation of that, but I'll, I'll just put it as there for a seed for your Tuesday discussion. Um, what, how does Jesus um, show the example of innovation, and how does Acts 15 show the example of innovation? I'm going to jump to the end. Actually, I'm just going to quickly say basically what happens in Acts 15. They're like, do Gentile Christians need to get circumcised or not? And then they have, they call this like big council because they've been fighting about it for a really long time. And um, they start with kind of like cognitive textual debate. Um, like you assume it's all the, you know, all the Pharisees and whatnot that are now um, Christians or like coming, like, or Christians that come from sort of that mindset of the, um, the letter of the law mindset. Um, they're having all these discussions, and um, then what actually changes their mind is Paul and Barnabas and one other person, Peter, start telling stories. And then basically the stories trump the cognitive debate, and at the end, um, James, who was kind of a lead guy at that time, says, God is doing a new thing here. Like, God's doing something new here, but what God is doing is consistent um, with what we know to be God's desire to redeem all nations. And so James says, let's not trouble the Gentiles with burdensome hoops to jump through. <laughs> let's not place this heavy yoke of circumcision on their necks. Okay, so where does that leave us? What do we do with this whole contentious issue of do we allow um, Christian same-sex marriage in the church? or between two consenting adults. We basically have three choices. We can keep with the status quo, requiring celibacy for anything other than a male and female union. Or we could expand the definition of covenantal marriage to include two consenting adults. Or we could keep the covenant definition of marriage for the male-female union and create some other kind of like blessing um, for same-sex couples. So if we want to figure out what are we going to do on that? <laughs> we have to know a little bit about what confident means, which would be another thing you can jump into on Tuesday because there's not enough time to get into all that here. But covenant basically is a commitment in the Bible that binds together two or more persons with promises and obligations. So we have the Sinai covenant in the Old Testament and we have the new covenant in Christ in the New Testament. But the key thing about covenant, the key theme is faithfulness. I will be your God and you will be my people. And then with the new covenant, because we're unable to be fully faithful to God, it's through Jesus that we're able, you know, Jesus is the one that fulfills our part of the covenant on our behalf to God. So that's covenant. All right. So next is what is the purpose of a marriage covenant? Because there's all kinds of covenants, like, you know, you're selling your land or you're selling your donkey, right? Um, but marriage covenant specifically. So back to theology prof, Amy Plantinga She has, um, this is what she says when we're talking about the current institution of marriage. She basically says we all need to remember to eat some humble pie. Because she says, you know, the movement for marriage equality is not a matter of the straight majority inviting LGBTQ people into a healthy and well-functioning Christian marriage institution. <laughs> Instead, it's actually an opportunity for all of us to think through marriage again together. How does marriage matter, and what does a healthy marriage look like? So I'm going to propose four points that I've pulled out of scripture on what is biblical marriage for. So companionship, including intimacy, oneness, and lifelong commitment. 
So in Genesis 1, we get good, 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 very good. Then in Genesis 2, 7, Lord God forms Adam, the human, from the dust of the ground. And we have a pretty humble start. Then we've got verse 9, God's making trees, pleasant to the sight and good for food. And, and everything is really quite lovely. But then all of a sudden, in Genesis 2, 18, we have a major hiccup here in our creation story. We have, then the Lord God said... It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make a helper either as his partner. And so right off the bat, we get this sense that there's a universal human need for intimate companionship with another human. Um, and you know, sometimes this argument gets the rap that it's like, oh, this is just modern psychology, you know, attachment theory. Um, John Bowlby, the founder of attachment theory, says intimate attachments to other human beings are the hub around which a person's life revolves. But it's not just modern psychology. It's declared straight from the mouth of God. Your puppy dog, Rufus, is not, it's not enough. God introduces the human to all the animals and it's not enough and God still needs to make another human to be a companion. So we are intentionally made for social interconnectedness and deep, intimate companionship. Genesis 2.23, the man says after the woman is made, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman for she was taken out of man. And that is why a man leaves his mother and father and is united to his wife and they become one flesh. And there is some level of mystery in this. There's a, there's a poetry to it. And um, that brings me to point two. The purpose of marriage is to image God. Because when we go to that landmark passage in Ephesians 5, it again speaks of that mystery. And it quotes back to this one flesh passage in Genesis 2. In Ephesians 5.30, it says, For we are members of his body, Christ's body. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become flesh. It's quoting Genesis there. This is a profound mystery. But I am talking about Christ and the church. However, each one of you must also love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. So we have this, um, that the witness to God is very intertwined with the, the covenant nature of marriage, the intimacy, the mutuality, um, the love between the husband and the wife. It was in, there's an intentionality in there that it's pointing to something more than just itself. Number three is procreation and fruitfulness. So Genesis 1.27, God created mankind in his image, and then right after that says, be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the sky and over every living creature that moves along the ground. Um, so Amy Plantinga-Pau says um, that when you have um, traditional or non-affirming marriage theologies, they're typically really connected to complementarity and fruitfulness, and those two pr principles kind of reinforce each other. So, um, like, marriage that is founded on complementarity between men and women will, will tend to have as its highest focus biological procreation. Um, so the more complementarian you are, the harder it will be for you to have a, um, support same-sex marriage, basically. Um, what I would like to suggest here is that procreation is really important. We would not continue as a human race without it. But it is not like if we have an umbrella of fruitfulness, procreation is one aspect of the ways that humans can be fruitful and ways that marriages can be fruitful, not just humans. And we already bless many marriages 
that are not biologically, procreatively fruitful. And it's, it's not just infertile couples that you don't know they're not going to be fruitful until they get married. We also bless marriages of postmenopausal women. Like, there's no possibility they're going to have kids, but we still think it's a good thing um, to marry them. Um, Mercy Amba Oduyoyi, a theologian with no biological children herself, gives this broader Christian understanding of fruitfulness. She says, and she, she, I like how she mimics the Genesis verse in what she has to say. She says, increase in humanity. Multiply the likeness to God for which you have the potential. Multiply the fullness of humanity that is found in Christ. Fill the earth with the glory of God. Increase in creativity. Bring into being that which God can look upon and pronounce good, even very good. And lastly, the fourth um, piece that I think is key in a biblical understanding of marriage is to grow in our Christ-like sacrificial love. And I really just don't have very much to say about that other than that my own experience of marriage is that it is the best discipleship school ever for learning how to love my, my neighbor. <laughs> Hardest person to love in the world <laughs> is your own spouse sometimes. And all of these four key features Again, what they are all about, they're all pointing to, like that quote I read earlier, to deep union with God, to being enveloped into the Trinity. Our, our God, this Trinitarian communion, this dance of love, creation is formed by this overflow out of that, that dance of love and creativity. And then now we are being invited to be enveloped back into it. And I love how, um, like I was taught, you know, well, Jesus is in my heart, or like invite Jesus into your heart, right? But in the New Testament, it's not Jesus in my heart, it's in Christ. The words in Christ are more than 90 times in the New Testament. So the, it, that's the invitation for us to be enveloped into the Trinity. Okay, who is marriage for? Sometimes I have to breathe. <laughs> It was really, really, really hard, like, really hard to not put m so many things in here. I just wanted to say so many things in this sermon that I'm, I'm sorry that it's very rambly and probably not the best, like, easiest thing to listen to. I apologize. So, same-sex couples are asking for a really good thing. They're asking for an opportunity for commitment, for responsibility, for societal integration, and most pertinent in a Christian context, they're asking for an opportunity to grow in sacrificial love that looks Christ-like and to image God through marriage, through this lifelong commitment. Why wouldn't we say a resounding yes to that? What is, what is truly preventing us from doing like they did in Acts 15 and lifting the burden of forced celibacy? Celibacy is something when it's a call, but when it's not something you're called to, then that's forced celibacy. Um, lifting that burden from the necks of our same-sex-oriented siblings in Christ. Acts 15 did it for the gentle comforts and circumcision. Why can't we do that today? Tends to be, like I said, these two main hang-ups, procreation and the related male-female complementarity piece. So I just, you know, this is like a huge conversation. I just kind of want to throw a few more ways to think about it into the basket, and you can mix it all up and talk about it more on Tuesday. Um, 
so, well, first off, of course, like complementarian theology is a whole thing, and it's it cannot be pulled apart from its patriarchal historical context. It also cannot be pulled apart from the misunderstanding of the word helper or easer that we have been prone to in, in Genesis 2. That word every other time, almost every other time it's used in scripture, it's like rescuer or deliver, deliverer, and it's attributed to God, yet somehow in Genesis 2 we've made it as like a second-class human word. Um, so that's sort of like the, the patriarchy angle. I'm not going to get into that today because I'd be here all day. Um, but what I do want to talk about is that this whole idea of male and female um, gender identity and sexual identity, it, it does seem to be very, very connected to our image of godness. Um, and so, like, where we see this really clearly in the Genesis 1 poem, and, you know, there's so many, um, like, we're familiar with our poems in our English language, in our current context, and we know to expect a rhyme here, or we know to expect, you know, however many syllables on that line. But in Hebrew poetry, um, two things that um, were normal things in their, po like just like us expecting a rhyme. Uh, one of the, the things is like this parallelism thing. So it's like the first line is said and then the next lines are just expanding on that point. So we have in Genesis 1:27. So God created humankind in his image. That's your first point, then we're expanding. In the image of God, he created them, repeating and expanding. Male and female, he created them. So there is something about being made male and female or being made in any gender or with any sexual identity that is cannot be taken apart from our image of godness. There's another poetic device called merismus, and that's the whole like um, when you give two opposites and you're you're meaning to include everything between the two opposites. So day and night, including twilight and dawn, male and female could potentially include any number of gender identities between that. It's, to be fair, what was the original author intending that when they wrote it? I don't know, like, did they have that idea of gender identity? Can we read it now today that way? Potentially. Um, so that's just, you know, something to kind of think about. Um, there's another way that I, I think is helpful to think about it. And it's this idea that like we have this tendency to say, well, if we're going to have this, then that means we can't have that. But, but what about both and? And um, so we know, like, we know that male-female partnerships are more common. So there's this thing called a, um, um, a foundational in instance and a limiting instance. Um, so I'm going to quote Paul Lehman from his book, The Decalogue and the Human Future. So, um, Genesis describes a created order in which a generative, enduring sexual relationship between a man and a woman plays a central role, but the centrality, so the foundational instance, of one kind of relationship does not actually require the exclusion of every other kind of relationship. So, th there can be a foundational instance, a, a central role, without there being um, boundaries to other things also being possible, is what I'm trying to say there. So a man-woman relationship flourishing can still go on flourishing while having other um, types of relationships with other gender and sexual minority to consenting adult possibilities of relationships 
they could both flourish alongside each other is what I'm trying to say, which seems like it should be kind of common sense, but it's really a pretty major argument out there that both can't coexist. Um, and the last one I kind of want to throw out there to chew on is this Ephesians 5 passage. Because sometimes reading this Ephesians 5 passage, for me as a woman, sometimes it just kind of makes me cringe, right? This passage has been used to support um, male-female complementarianism. It has been used to support like women just stay in the home, be barefoot in the kitchen, you're second rate to your husband because you're only told in Ephesians 5 to respect and submit to your husband, <laughs> whereas your husband is told to love you. Why the difference? Why not, why not use equal words? And so that's one of the ways the passage has been read. But I would say that reading of the passage is actually taking our current Western mindset and inserting it into the text. If we actually try to put on and imagine what the mindset is of the people in that day and the writers in that day, my ancient context goggles, when I read it, um, one of the themes that actually shouts really loudly from this passage is kind of like a blowing up of gender norms. Because if, I'm, if I have my ancient context goggles on and I read, wives, submit yourselves to your husbands. Well, the wives are like, well, there's nothing new here. Like, we've, that's what we've been told our whole lives, right? Like, but then, um, and then we read right after that, husbands, love your wives, give your lives up for her as Christ loved the church. What? <laughs> like, the, that's, that's backwards. That's blowing up gender norms. So I just want to kind of say, hey, wait a minute, like there are instances in the Bible that are, are blowing up norms. So this whole blowing up norms thing is not new. It's been wrestled with for 2,000 years. So why are we so unwilling to let go of our status quo when we see that these kind of norm-blowing stories are just like everyday part and parcel of the New Testament. The, the New Testament's literally just like brimming with stories of cultural contexts being challenged and cast off and rewritten, rewritten by the way of Jesus. Like that's one of the reasons why Jesus was crucified, right? And so, so why are we not, as Christians, if, if that's who we're following, why are we not willing to wrestle with that today? Because really, in the end, the whole point is God and not us. We live in a God-centered drama, not a human-centered one. In the Westminster Catechism, question one, it asks, what is the chief end of man or the chief end of humanity? And the answer is simply to glorify God and to enjoy God forever. So simply, I would just ask, can a covenantal, lifelong, monogamous marriage for same-sex couples or two consenting adults, can that bring glory to God and it, can they enjoy God forever through that marriage? And can that marriage show the love of God to the world? Yes. I have seen it with my own eyes. I've seen the Holy Spirit at work. And I want to tell the stories just like Peter and Paul and Barnabas did in Acts 15. And perhaps you've seen these stories too. You've witnessed this too. So I guess I just say, same-sex marriage, why not? 